Well, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. I've titled this morning's message, Faithful Suffering. Faithful Suffering. And as we come to this chapter, Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to be in this chapter for the next several weeks. And it's important for us to slow down and look at this chapter carefully carefully because really this chapter is the focal point of the entire book. In Lamentations chapter 3, we find the central message of the book of Lamentations. See, often uh, in our English-speaking minds, we kind of save the grand conclusion to the end. But often in Hebrew poetry, which is what Lamentations is, Often, Hebrew poetry will put the main point right in the middle of the poetry, the poem. And that's what we find in the book of Lamentations. Chapter 3 is the key. In fact, that's why the other, the other chapters in the book of Lamentations, they're 22 verse acrostics. Each verse is a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, in chapter 3, what do you have? 66 verses. Three verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Why? There's more to cover here. And what's interesting is in this focal point of the book, what we find is the prophet Jeremiah processing suffering in his own heart. When we first started our study of the book of Lamentations, we discussed how a biblical lamentation is a way of processing our pain, processing our suffering in light of God's truth. And what we find in Lamentations chapter 3 is the prophet doing that in his own heart. He's not talking about Jerusalem or to Jerusalem, at least not in the beginning of this chapter. He's now dealing with his own heart. In fact, in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Here the prophet lets us peek into his own heart, his own walk with the Lord, to see how he dealt with suffering in his own life. This chapter records how God dealt with his heart in suffering, and that's of value to us because it shows us how we can deal with our own hearts in the midst of suffering. And as we get into this, there's going to be two themes that keep coming up over and over again in Lamentations chapter 3. One of them is suffering. In a fallen world with sinful hearts, we're going to deal with suffering. And the other theme that keeps coming up over and over again is faithfulness. You see, as the prophet processes suffering in his own life, readers are reminded that faithfulness is the ultimate goal of suffering. That's important. Let me say it again. This chapter reminds us that faithfulness is the ultimate goal of suffering. It's not escape. It's not relief. It's not comfort. You see, when we suffer, we must keep in mind that God's purpose for our lives is conformity to Christ, not personal comfort. Which means when we as Christians suffer, we must avoid the temptation to pursue a fast escape and instead we must pursue faithful endurance. 
When we suffer, we must remember that obedience to Christ is more important than relief from suffering. You say, how do I pursue faithfulness in the midst of suffering? It's hard. How do I endure in that? What does faithfulness look like? How do I, how do I go about pursuing faithfulness? Well, much will come out on that as we, much will come out on the subject as we study through this chapter. But just at the front end, I want you to see that the key to faithful suffering is enduring faith in God's faithfulness. Did you catch that? If you want to be faithful, you must trust in God's faithfulness. Really, that's the epicenter of this chapter. Verse 23, we sang it a moment ago. Verse 23, the prophet says, Great is your faithfulness. No matter what we are going through, no matter what it feels like, no matter what our circumstances are, we must hold on to that conviction that God is always faithful to His character, that God is always faithful to His Word, and that God is always faithful to His people. You say, in the midst of suffering, how can I know that? How can I be convinced that God is faithful when I'm suffering so much? Well, one place that we can look to for reassurance and conviction of the faithfulness of God is the very message of the gospel itself. You want to see the faithfulness of God to his character, to his word, and to his people, you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's character is holy. It's unassailable. It's unchanging. God can't just look at sinners and say, yeah, you know, let's pretend like you never did any of that. That would be a violation of his divine justice. So he doesn't violate his character. What does he do? He sends a perfect substitute who can pay the penalty for our sins on our behalf. And not only in doing this, not only is he faithful to his character, but he's faithful to his word. This is, in fact, the very thing that he promised to do from the very beginning. He promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan. He promised to send a suffering servant. He promised that a son would be born. That son, of course, is Jesus Christ. Being very God, became man, was born lived perfectly, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead. All according to the Scriptures. God was faithful to His Word. And friend, we cannot help but to see how faithful He was to His people in the Gospel as well, wasn't He? We are nothing but rebels against God. We deserve nothing from God, and yet God has given us everything in Christ Jesus. That is the very definition, the epitome of what faithfulness looks like. If you're in the midst of suffering and you're you're battling, how can I know that God is good? How can I know that He is faithful in the midst of suffering? You just go back to the gospel and you see God's faithfulness right there. And then from there, His faithfulness doesn't end with the gospel. From there, as a believer in Christ Jesus, if if you've believed in that message of the gospel, you have the full forgiveness of sins, you are right with God. And from there, you can go on and see God's faithfulness in in even more ways in your life. For instance, you can know, and we see this in Lamentations chapter 3, you can know that God will be faithful to you even in the midst of your suffering. We just sang a moment ago, abide with me. You know what, we ask the Lord, abide with us, abide with us, stay with us. But 
But we ask it knowing what the answer already is. He's going to abide with us. He's going to stay with us. You might feel like you're alone in the midst of your pain and suffering and trials, but if you are one of God's children, you are never alone. In fact, Christ has put his spirit not around you or by you or with you, but in you. That's how close he is to you. You can be confident that God will be faithful to you in the midst of your suffering. And by the way, not only can you be confident as a believer in Christ Jesus that God will be faithful to you in the midst of your suffering, you can also be convinced of this, that God is even faithful to you through the means of suffering. In other words, it's not just that God is going to help you get through this trial. It's that God, for his own faithful and perfect purposes, has sent that trial into your life for your good. Remember what the author of Hebrews says, God disciplines those whom he loves. See, God's purpose in sending suffering is to strengthen us, to strengthen our faith by forcing us to endure in that faith. Suffering is designed by God to fortify our faith, to to focus our worship, and to equip us to minister to one another. God knows something that we often forget. God knows that suffering in this life is better than sin. Suffering is better than sin. And if suffering protects us from sin, guess what God's gonna do? He's gonna send that trial. He's gonna send that suffering. He's gonna send that difficulty into our life if that's what it takes to expose our sin and protect us from it. One of the Puritans put it this way. Afflictions are a crystal glass wherein the soul hath the clearest sight of the ugly face of sin. Pretty good, isn't it? And this is the reality that we see in our text this morning. In this text, God allows the prophet Jeremiah to feel the pain of sin to protect him from sin. That's what God does. Sometimes the Lord allows us to suffer. He allows us to feel the pain of sin to protect us from potential sin. And sometimes that disciplining effect, that suffering, it's preemptive sometimes we think of the lord's discipline as i did something wrong now the lord's disciplining me well sometimes that discipline is more in the form of preemptive and proactive training god's not disciplining us for some sin that he saw in our life he's disciplining us for something potential sin that he sees in our life that we don't even see yet God may see a potential for sin. He he may see unnoticed unbelief in our heart. He may see a hidden pocket of pride that needs to be dealt with. And so he sends the trial. He sends the suffering. And that's what's going on with the prophet Jeremiah in these verses today. God's allowing Jeremiah to feel the pain of sin to protect him from sin. Specifically, as we, as we move through these verses, I want you to notice six examples of the pain that the Lord allowed the prophet to suffer. Six examples of pain that God faithfully, I remind you, allowed the prophet to suffer under. 
And just note that as we read through these verse by verse, note that the prophet is describing the suffering that he felt from his perspective. We're going to read through some of this stuff, and it is, it is heavy. But what we need to understand that is that this is a pretty good description of what was happening to the prophet. It's basically accurate. But the prophet's conclusions, at least initially, were wrong. In other words, God was really allowing these things to happen, but the prophet's evaluation of why and how they were happening, it wasn't always accurate. The prophet was right. He was suffering immensely, but at times he's wrong about what God was trying to accomplish through this suffering. And what we're going to see is that the prophet had to rightly see the faithfulness of the Lord before he could rightly see what was happening in his own life. So let's look at these pains the Lord allowed the prophet to endure. And we'll begin in verses 1 through 3 where we learn that, the, that God exposed the prophet to the spiritual pain of sin. The spiritual pain of sin. You see, the prophet was a righteous man, but God allowed him to suffer alongside the unrighteous people of Jerusalem when it fell. And essentially, God was allowing the prophet to experience, at least in small doses, the immense pain that sin will cause in your life. For instance, God allowed the prophet to experience a small taste of the pain associated with divine wrath. In verse 1, he says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. It's interesting, when the prophet says, I am the man, uh, the, the Hebrew word there for man, translated in English, man, it, it's a word that signifies a mighty man. If, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to have a Hebrew word that meant macho man, that's how I, he, one of my Hebrew professors defined this word, macho man. He had never heard of Randy Savage, but that's immediately what went through my mind. Uh, that's what the word means, a macho man, a mighty man, a warrior. And it's interesting that the prophet would use that terminology, isn't it? He must have thought of himself, look, I'm, I'm basically the only righteous guy left around here. Spiritually, I'm, I'm a mighty man. And yet now, this mighty man has been brought low through affliction. He's now in a humbled state. Why? Because he's experienced the rod of God's wrath. What's the rod? The rod is, as many children understand, it is an instrument of discipline, isn't it? The prophet says, you know, I was, a, I was a mighty man, mighty in righteousness, and now I'm under the rod of God's discipline. He goes on in verse 2 and says, He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. This is remarkable. What he's saying is God has alienated himself from me. He, he pushed me out of the covenant blessings. I'm in the darkness. Darkness in Scripture represents a separation from God's truth and God's holiness. The prophet felt like his shepherd was driving him away. By the way, just as a side, side note, Sometimes faithful shepherding actually feels like driving someone away when in reality it's faithful discipline. But the prophet felt like his shepherd was driving him away. 
fact, verse 3, it says, Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. And the prophet's repeating himself here. He's indicating this is ongoing. God's hand is against me in an ongoing and sustained way. prophet felt like God had turned against him. In reality, however, God was faithfully working for him through discipline. See, the prophet forgot that the rod of discipline and the rod of comfort go hand in hand. Remember Psalm 23? Your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. Or maybe Hebrews chapter 12 You've got a bunch of believers who are under the discipline of God. They're suffering and they're saying, wait a minute, if we're suffering, maybe we're not real believers. And the author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. If you're under the discipline of the Lord, if he's sanctifying you, if he's building your faith, if he's getting that sin out of your life, that means he loves you. Because a father lovingly disciplines his son. Prophet forgot that to be disciplined of the Lord is to have assurance from the Lord. There's comfort in that. Even when it doesn't feel like it. So God exposed the prophet to this spiritual pain. God also exposed the prophet to what we might call as severe pain. We see this in verses 4 through 6. You got spiritual pain, you got severe pain. In fact, the severity of the pain endured by Jeremiah in the fall of Jerusalem, it's virtually unparalleled in human history. You would be hard-pressed with the obvious exception of Christ Jesus and the possible parallel of Job. You would be hard-pressed to find a righteous man who suffered more than Jeremiah. He was righteous and faithful to the people, and yet even to the point of the people killing him, he suffered it all. In fact, his pain was so severe that in these verses, he could only describe it with several graphic comparisons. For instance, the, the pain he felt, he compared it to the severity of deep physical pain. He says in verse 4, He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. The phrase there, waste away, it could be translated, He wore me out. If you've ever seen a great boxing match where... One boxer just goes to work with body blows on another boxer until he just wears him out. That's the picture the prophet is painting here. He wore me out with body blow after body blow and he would not let up. So much so that my bones are broken. There's no inward stability. The prophet's saying I was crushed from the inside out. In addition to that, in verse 5, the prophet compares the severity of his pain to the severity of the siege around Jerusalem. Remember, before the Babylonians came in and knocked everything down, they laid siege to the city for a very long time. You got 18 months surrounded, no food or water in. We saw earlier in the book of Lamentations that people were resorting to cannibalism. There's a severity to pain when you're under siege. Prophet says, that's what it felt like in my heart. 
It says, he has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. What was surrounding him? Bitterness and tribulation. Bitterness is hardship on the inside, tribulation, external hardship. The prophet was surrounded by deep internal pain and harsh external pain. In fact, so much so that in verse 9, he compares the severity of his suffering to the severity of death. Excuse me, verse 6. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. By the way, darkness here, you might not pick it up in your English translation. Darkness here is actually plural. Darkness is. It's what, what grammarians would call a plural of intensity. Behind one darkness is another darkness is another darkness is another darkness. Kind of like when you hold mirrors up to each other and it's just mirror, 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 mirror. That's the darkness. He was in the darkness. He felt forgotten like someone had thrown him into the dungeon and forgot about him. In fact, he says that I'm, I'm, I'm down here like the dead of long ago. What does the dead of long ago mean? Well, who remembers somebody who died 10 generations ago? Unless they were extremely famous, nobody remembers him. What's his point? God has left me for dead and he doesn't remember me. There's a severity to his pain. Additionally, in verses 7 through 9, we learned that God exposed the prophet to what we might call is an inescapable pain. So there's, there's a spiritual component to this. There's a severity to this. And then verses 7, th- seven through 9, he's not going to be able to get out of it. And this is challenging for us because when we start to suffer, the very first question that we usually ask is, how long is this going to last? And then the second question is, how can I get out of this? We would escape before the suffering is allowed to do its sanctifying work. But the prophet because of God's hand upon him, wasn't allowed to escape before that sanctification happened. God let the prophet feel this inescapable pain. Verse 7, He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. In other words, there was no human power that was going to get him out of this situation. The Lord had set up a blockade and put literally translated, put bronze shackles on him. So on the outside he got walls, on the inside he got these chains. There there essentially is what it's saying, that there was no human resource, no human power, no human means of escape from this painful situation. He He couldn't get out of it on his own. And not only was it inescapable through human power, but this is incredible. Verse 8 The prophet describes this pain as inescapable through prayer. You see, with no human recourse possible, the prophet turned to prayer in order to escape, but even this didn't work. Verse eight, though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Call and cry here express the desperation and the the repeated prayers for escape. How many times do you think Jeremiah went before the Lord on his face and said, Lord, get me out of this? But no matter how often the prophet prayed, he got the same answer every time, silence. 
the Lord did not deliver him out of those circumstances. By the way, this is something of what the Apostle Paul experienced with the thorn in the flesh. Take the thorn out of my flesh, Lord. Come on, I got ministry to do. Three times he prayed, and finally the Lord said what? My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not, I'm not. The answer is no. See, for a season, God will withhold the answers to our prayers to force us to trust him and keep praying. That's where the prophet was. Why don't you answer me, Lord? And since his own power and his persistent prayer did not lead to an escape, he thought, well, maybe you could run away from this whole thing. Just, just, just run, escape. Well, that wasn't going to happen. Verse 9, He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. You're not running away from this. Blocks of stone here, it's literally quarried stone. In other words, it's stone that's particularly been formed and fitted to make this wall. In other words, God put intentional and specific hindrances in the prophet's life so that he could not escape. And by the way, even if he had gotten past the Lord's providential blockade, it says that his paths would have been crooked. In other words, his, his own plans would have been confused, so he couldn't get away anyway. God had him under this burden, and God was not going to let him escape until this sanctifying work had been completed in him. It was inescapable. And not only was it inescapable, but in verses 10 through 12, we see a fourth example of the pain the prophet was allowed to endure. We see that God exposed the prophet to deliberate pain. These are tough verses. See, these verses make it clear God would not let the prophet out of this suffering because God had deliberately purposed it and planned it for him. You see, sometimes we like to try and play theological games to remove God's sovereignty from our pain as if, well, God's in control of the good stuff, but the bad stuff, that, that comes from Satan. <laughs> really? Really? So you got two equals here battling in your mind and your theology? How's that work? The prophet didn't go there. Actually, the prophet rightly recognized that God had sovereignly and deliberately allowed him to suffer. Now, what, what the prophet was not right about, though, was evaluating God's motives in that. It says in verse 10, He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. In other words, this was intentional. God was not a bystander watching the prophet suffer. He was intentionally behind the suffering. In fact, to the prophet who rightly understood God's sovereignty but wrongly understood God's motives, to the prophet it felt like God had ambushed him. I just came around a corner and he pounced on me like a predator. In fact, one commentator put it this way, the shepherd has now turned into the predator. Essentially, the prophet's saying, you're the shepherd, you were supposed to protect me from the bear and protect me from the lion, but you were the bear and the lion. It was intentional. And not only was it intentional, it was planned out ahead of time. 
Verse 11, he turned aside my steps. So he's a bear lying in wait, a predator lying in wait in this side road. And now in the next verse, he turned aside my steps down that side road. He pushed me right into the ambush and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Was God in control of prophet's life? Yeah, he sure was. Did God put him right in harm's way? Yes, he did. But what we need to remember as we read through this is that sometimes our shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. You think about that. You know Psalm 23. Most of you do. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now you think about that for a second. You may never thought about it this way, but you think about that for a second. That sheep in Psalm 23, he was following the shepherd, right? Yeah. That's where the comfort came from. That's what, that's what made his life good. That's what gave him protection. That's why he didn't fear evil. He was following the shepherd. So you tell me, believer, how did he end up in the valley of the shadow of death? The shepherd led him there. The shepherd led him there. The sheep didn't go through the valley of the shadow of death because he ran away. He went through it because he was following his shepherd. And in the midst of that valley, the shepherd was teaching him, you trust me. There's only protection in me. You trust me. That's what God was doing for the prophet. Didn't feel like it though, did it? In fact, notice verses 12 and 13, really. It says, he bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. Think about that. Verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. See, the prophet is using this imagery of arrows to express that the pain he felt was specifically and sovereignly targeted towards him. Remember, God's arrows never fire off randomly. And when God bends the bow and shoots the arrow, he hits his mark. And, and notice in verse 13, arrows is plural. There were multiple trials targeted at the prophet from God. And these trials, these arrows, this pain, it hit the prophet in his kidneys. What does that mean? His weakest spot. That's what it's talking about. Now again, prophet was theologically accurate about God's sovereignty over his suffering, but he missed, he missed God's intentions in all of this. You see, the prophet knew that his suffering was deliberate, deliberate, but he didn't yet understand why God was doing it. See, here's what you need to understand about this situation. God was not after the prophet. He was after the prophet's most dangerous weakness. What's the kidney? It's your weakest spot. What was God after? The prophet's weakness. What was his weakness? The same Weakness that you and I have, believer. Sin and unbelief. And we love sin so much that when God targets the sin in our life to cut it out and kill it, 
for us and for our good. When God targets the sin in our lives with his arrows, we love that sin so much that it feels like he's targeting us, don't we? What we must remember is that God will deliberately allow us to experience pain so that we will seek his strength in our sinful weaknesses. Again, one of the Puritans says it pretty well. Quote, The hand of God may be against a man when the love and heart of God is much set upon a man. In other words, God may put you through the ringers of pain and suffering in your circumstances. His providential hand might feel like it's against you, but his love and his heart is upon you because he's doing a work in you through that suffering. That's what God was doing for the prophet. He didn't get it yet though, did he? In verses 13 through 15, we learn that on top of everything else, God exposed the prophet to what we might call a lonely pain. In other words, he had no one to help him bear the burden of his pain. You will never feel loneliness as intensely as you do in the midst of suffering, particularly when you're suffering for the sake of righteousness. I mean, just imagine the picture. The prophet's running around, he's got arrows sticking out of his body and nobody to pull them out and mend those wounds. I mean, we're blessed within the congregation. We have a whole body of believers to come alongside of us and encourage us if we'll let them, if we'll make ourselves available to that, to build us up, to challenge us, to convict us when we need to, to pull those arrows out and to mend those wounds. But notice the loneliness of the prophet's pain expressed in these verses. Verse 14, I've become the laughingstock of all peoples. I think the better translation there would be all my people. The prophet's not saying, look, the Babylonians, the Gentiles, all those pagan idolatrous worshipers, they think I'm ridiculous because I'm a prophet of Yahweh. That's not what he's saying. He was a laughingstock to the people of Jerusalem, to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel. The very people that he was sent as a prophet, uh, prophet to minister to, those were the people that he was a laughingstock to. In fact, he says that he was the object of their taunts all the day long. Literally, this means they made up songs about him. Now, this might be the part of the sermon where you start to get convicted about all those songs and chants you made up about teachers when you were in grade school or whatever. We all had them. That's what was going on. I mean, we look back at the prophet Jeremiah, the stalwart of the faith, most likely killed for his faithfulness to the Lord, a man of God, a prophet of the Lord. Wow, Jeremiah. You know who thought that in his day? Basically, nobody. By the way, this is just kind of a side note. God often withholds the praise of man to protect you from serving from, for the approval of man. Man, I, I have been showing up and I come during the week, I get a key and I clean the place and, 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 I, and I pick up all these no good, lousy, whatever, they leave their bulletins around, I pick them all up. I clean the bathrooms and nobody's ever said thank you to me. Well, 
Who are you doing it for? Why are you doing it? Maybe the Lord is withholding that praise of man that you covet so much to help you see your heart and help you see you're not doing it as unto the Lord. He'll do that a lot of times. Certainly part of what must have been going on in the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, think about the, the gift that Jeremiah had through this. We can know, about as close to certain as we can know anything about the hearts of any individual, we can know that Jeremiah was not serving for the approval of man because he never got it, not a single time. We can look back and say, man, his heart was pure in that. His motives were pure in that. But he was lonely. He was isolated. And that loneliness became bitter to him. Verse 15, he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. The term here, bitterness, it, it's referring to a bitter drink. Just, just a, a nasty, bitter drink. And, and the term wormwood, I'm sure you've probably heard that term before. It's talking about a plant that produces a dangerously bitter oil. Uh, this plant would, would give off this, really, if you drank it uh, in large doses, it, it could be deadly. It was so bitter and just disgusting. Prophet says, I'm all alone. The only thing I have to keep me company is my bitterness. I'm filled to the brim with bitterness. If my life were a cup, then there would not be room for another ounce of bitterness in my life. And on top of that... I have been sated with wormwood. The word sated could also be translated intoxicated. And the point is not that he was intoxicated. But, but, but when you're intoxicated with a substance, that substance uh, takes over your life essentially, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why we as believers are not to get drunk because we don't want anything but the Spirit to control our lives. What he's saying is, this wormwood, this most bitter substance I can imagine, more bitter than a thousand sweet tarts at one time, kids. It has permeated every part of my life. It is dominating me. It is affecting every choice that I make. It's affecting every thought that I have. Every word that I say is seeping with this wormwood. In other words, bitterness was the only thing that he could feel. And at this point, he didn't know why. Now we can look back and say from our vantage point, the Lord was allowing him to experience the bitterness of this life so that he could experience the sweetness of a walk with the Lord and an eternity with the Lord. But at this moment, the prophet just says, bitterness is all I know. I'm completely alone with only my bitterness. And all of this pain, all of this pain, it leads us to verses 16 through 18. Where God exposed the prophet to what we might call a hopeless pain. A hopeless pain. You see, really, these final verses are the culmination of this entire section. This is where God has been leading the prophet the whole time. God allowed the pain to continue so that the prophet could see that the cause of his hopelessness wasn't his circumstances. 
So God had to expose the prophet to hopeless pain and hopeless circumstances in order to expose the prophet's hopeless heart. Look at verse 16. Look at, look at the humiliation here, just hopeless humiliation. It says, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. The grinding on gravel, you can imagine, just put it in a mouthful of gravel in your mouth and grind it on your teeth. That's what he's talking about. It's really, it's, it's a way of describing total and utter frustration. You ever get in a stage in life where everything that you do doesn't work? I think, I'm not a big, you know, for those of you who know me, I'm not a big touchy-feely guy. So, you know, I don't dwell a lot on my emotions, but let me tell you what, the, I think the emotion that I hate the most is frustration. When he says, my teeth were, were grinding on gravel, it is the epitome of total frustration. And then when he says, when I was cowered in the ashes, the ashes, that's the dust. You know what's lower than dust? Nothing. <laughs> Everything he tried to do didn't work. He was humiliated in it. He was brought low. Couldn't get any lower than he was in. And this hopeless humiliation had him in a state of hopeless despair. Verse 17, my soul is bereft of peace. In other words, I ain't got no peace. I'll tell you what, peace, true peace in your soul, knowing that you're right with the Lord, knowing that you could die today and go to heaven, knowing that you have a clean conscience before the Lord. There is nothing sweeter than that peace, is there? Prophet, had no peace, had no peace. And says, in fact, he says, I have forgotten what happiness is. Literally, the word there for happiness is good. All the blessings that come from God, where, where does everything that's good come from? Our Father from above. James 1 says that, right? Every good gift comes from our Father above, with whom there is no, no, no changing, no shifting, no shadow of change. I have forgotten the goodness of God and His good gifts. I have no peace. This is total despair. And, and, and this despair leads to verse 18. Everything up to verse 18 is just a prophet basically writing down, here's how I felt, here's how I felt, here's how I felt. Which, by the way, you can see... you you. <laughs> you want to get to that place of despair, then you just live your whole life dwelling on how you feel constantly. But now finally, in verse 18, almost as if standing up to his own heart, the prophet responds to all this despair. And what does he say? So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. And in this response, we see the real problem. We see the real problem. Whose endurance failed? The prophets. Whose hope failed? Prophets. Did the Lord fail? No. Hope, we're going to talk about hope next week. Hope is something that we do. The promises of God are what He provides us. Hope is what we do. We hope in those promises. Did the promises of God fail? Did the faithfulness of God fail? No, what failed? Prophet's endurance and the prophet's hope. 
You see, the real problem wasn't hopeless circumstances. It was weak faith hidden deep in his heart. In fact, in all this suffering, God was graciously working to reveal something far worse than suffering in the prophet's life. It was unbelief. His faith didn't endure, which is why his hope from the Lord had vanished. That was the problem. It wasn't that God was against him. It's that he wasn't trusting the Lord. See, God used the extreme pain of the prophet's circumstances to reveal a deficient faith in his heart. And when you think about it, this is a kind work of the Lord. Hard, yes, but kind. Because it may very well have been that the only way Jeremiah, a righteous man in an unrighteous culture, uh, culture would have ever seen his unbelief. I mean, he's got this area of weak faith where he didn't even see it. And how would he have seen it? I mean, he's basically the only righteous guy left in Jerusalem. If he's judging his life based on what he sees around him, man, I'm way more righteous and faithful than these guys. <laughs> I out-endured these guys. But what did the Lord have to do? The Lord had to press on him harder. Why? Not because he was against him, but because he loved him. And here's what he knew. He knew that Jeremiah was going to need an enduring faith. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the faith of all those who have gone before us. And it talks about the faith of the prophets, some of whom were even cut in half. And how they endured in their faith. Well, most people believe from ancient views that the prophet who was cut in half was Jeremiah. In other words, God knew Jeremiah was going to need some strong faith. If he was going to endure, if he was going to hold on to his Savior, to Yahweh, he was going to need strong faith. And there was a chink in the armor, there was an area of weak faith, and God had to squeeze it out of him before he needed it. God preemptively worked in the prophet's life to protect him from this deficient faith that he didn't even know he had. You might say that God was protecting the prophet for the eternal joys of heaven by exposing him to the temporary pains of hell on earth. He faithfully exposed the prophet to the pain of sin in order to purify his faith because that's the goal in trials. It's not to get out of them as soon as possible. Although when the Lord gets us out of them, we say thank you, don't we? But the goal is an enduring faith that produces faithfulness. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Just listen to it. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Time out for a second. You joyfully expect, uh, accepted the plundering of your property. Why? I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. I'm not going to defend my own property rights. Since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What was the prophet struggling in? His endurance. Why did the Lord send him that suffering? To strengthen that enduring faith in his life because he needed it. See, friend, God is faithful to his people even when it doesn't feel like it. And he's faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him. Sometimes God faithfully allows us to suffer to make us faithful so that we can endure. That's what God was doing for the prophet. All of a sudden, you get to verse 18 and the prophet realizes, my problem wasn't my circumstances. My problem was that my endurance had failed and my hope had evaporated. And the only way he ever would have seen that weak faith in his life is for the Lord to put him through the ringers and expose him to the pain of sin. If the Lord's doing that in your life, keep praying, keep enduring, and keep trusting. God is faithful to you. God is faithful to you. His plans for you are good. His plans for your righteousness, His will for your life is conformity to Christ and sanctification. And He understands that sin is worse than suffering. And if He's got to put you through some suffering to protect you from sin, He'll do so. We join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its penetrating nature. We thank you for the way it not only exposes the prophet's heart, but it exposes, exposes our hearts as well. Lord, we confess to you that if we were put through the suffering the prophet did, it sure feels like our endurance would falter as well. So we pray, Lord, that you through your truth, through your means of grace, would be building endurance into our life. We pray that that would happen as we obey you without suffering, but even if it means we have to suffer a little bit, Lord, help us to endure our suffering faithfully, knowing with full confidence that you are always faithful to us. Lord, we know that trials are not easy. We know that suffering in this world is not good. But Lord, we confess that you have a good plan behind our suffering. And as a result, our trials are an occasion for joy because you're maturing us into mature manhood and the conformity of Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit to your plan for our life. I pray if there are any here who are suffering without Christ, who have no hope in the midst of their suffering, no faith at all, Lord, I pray that through whatever means necessary, you would drive them to the truth of the gospel that they might believe and be saved. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.